today's scripture is from uh, Paul's first or Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, beginning in chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. My name is Sam, and I am the preaching pastor here. You guys sound good this morning. Even when the words are like, you know, teeny, you're like, I cannot read that, but you still blasted it out, so that was just awesome. Uh, if you, were, if you uh, didn't get one, at some point you need to get one of these booklets. Um, I only made like 70 of them, I think, but they're on the side there. There was some in the front, uh, and this represents... Uh, really the next five weeks that we're going to go through. We use these books in our road groups, and um, I would encourage you, if you're not in one already, to get in a road group because we're going to talk about some things that are um, where community to discuss some difficult truths is going to be really important uh, to process it. We're only going to be able to accomplish so much in uh, whatever, 45 minutes on a Sunday, but um, you can accomplish a lot more together. So we're taking a break from um, our study of Matthew for this five-part series that we're calling Grace. And many of you know that we are members of uh, a network that we started called Three Strand, Three Strand Churches. And so these churches, there's about seven of them, I think, five to second member, um, but we covenant together for the purpose of accountability, uh, for community, and for cooperation. And so once a year, the pastors agreed to preach uh, a similar common series. And so this year we sat down to go, what are we going to preach? And we quickly came to the idea of grace. And grace, the working kind of definition of grace that we're going to use, is the unmerited and undeserved, and I'll say unfair and explain that later. We like that God's unfair, unfair, trust me. But his unmerited, undeserved, and unfair favor. And grace is at the center of Christianity. And grace is what really distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. Sadly, though, if we're honest, most of the discussions about the doctrines of grace over the years in the history of the church have led to more division in the church than unity. And there are lots of reasons for that, but the primary one is that men are sinful. Period. And when their heads get full of knowledge, they often get puffed up. And so we don't want to do that. 
We've got a couple hopes for this series. As So you've got churches in Linwood, churches in Briar, church in Bellingham, church in Marysville, church in Mount Vernon. We're all going to preach the same series. And it's going to look a little bit different, but for the most part it's the same. And this is what we want to accomplish. First and foremost, uh, we hope to elevate what we'll call a God-centered theology. So we are going to um, see in Scripture and, and let God speak for Himself and show that our God is very, very, very big. I'd argue that most of us have made God very small. But God is much bigger than we often believe the whole universe revolves around God, not us. His grace is the force that I believe keeps everything moving, everything in its place, everything in order. But because people and circumstances in life are so tangible, like when suffering comes into your life or just or any kind of difficulty or even or even prosperity of any kind, because those things are so like you can touch them and, and feel them we tend to develop our entire belief systems around those things. And what happens is we begin to um, let our intellect and our emotion define what is true. Even with regards to God. And so, a man-centered theology invariably leads to a God that's really small. A God that I can fully comprehend in every way. A God whom I can almost control. God who will give me what I want or leave me alone when I don't want Him. We want to have a big God. And I think Scripture reveals a God who is big. We also hope to provide a framework to understand God's story. And we'll talk about it being God's story a lot. And what this means is that God makes all of life meaningful. And when I say all, I mean all. Every aspect of your life is part of God's story and and God has injected meaning into it. And too often I think we look at life and the chaos that is life and the the things that happen that surprise us. And we look at all just everything and we see it as a series of just unconnected events. But Scriptures show us that God is at work all the time in every minute detail of our life. And Scripture I think gives us this picture of a God who is telling the story and working all things towards an end that is glorifying and redemptive and ultimately leading to the world's, including our complete restoration. Without good theology, without God-centered good theology, what happens when we live our lives is kind of our view of life is depressing at worst or confusing at best. And I think that's largely because of this. We believe that we are the main character in a story that is basically God's autobiography. We're not the center of the universe. We're not the center of the story. We are in God's story that He is telling about Himself. And the third thing is that we do want to, as a network, distinguish ourselves as what are you guys really about? And there's lots of things that we could unify around. We could have unified around a philosophy or unified around a certain practice or even a particular belief of Christianity and say this is who we are. But we've decided to basically rest on who God says He is. 
and who He's revealed Himself to be in Scripture. We could have, like I said, chosen lots of things, but we chose the thing that will distinguish us as churches and the things that will unite us as churches is the grace of God. And so this sermon series for all the churches that we are connected with in a very intentional, meaningful way is kind of our line in the sand for us making it clear that that God's self-revelation is our mission. And that His grace is the means by which we unify together. Now, as I said, historically, when you're talking about the doctrines of grace, I don't want to say they've caused more harm than good, but they have brought a lot of division. And as a result, a lot of people just kind of abandon them altogether. We're not going to talk about these difficult things. Or, maybe worse, they talk about kind of a cheap alternative. So we don't want to do either, but what we're going to do is feast on some of the most difficult yet beautiful texts in the Bible that will take us theologically deep. And I'll tell you right now, I feel ill-equipped and incompetent to preach through this. Um, There are men way smarter than me who have written volumes upon volumes on the doctrines of grace. And so we're not going to try and I'm not going to try to answer every question you have, but what we are going to do is show you a big God and then let you sit on some of that mystery. We're going to spend five weeks on 14 verses. Ephesians chapter one. There's another reason why people don't talk about the doctrines of grace. Seriously? Five sermons on 14 verses? Yes. All right. That's what I like to hear. I'm going to need a lot of that this next five weeks. But I want to, as we feast, I want you to understand, in the book of Ephesians, the two most common words, grace and mystery. Grace and mystery. So why do I say that? We're going to blow up grace. And then we're just going to sit there and go, I don't get it. That is mysterious. That is amazing. I'm going to say, yep. We're just going to let Scripture speak for itself and trust that as we do that, there's going to be some mystery. There's going to be some doctrines that make us uncomfortable. Some of you are ready and familiar with everything I'm going to talk about. And some of you haven't a clue what's coming. And some of you are fearful what's coming because you have discomfort with it. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. So I'm warning all of us, including myself, as I've just sat this week, studying grace and weeks before, I feel like the more I learn, the less I know. That God every day becomes more and more mysterious to me and more uncomfortable to me because just when I thought I understood Him and comprehended Him and could lay Him out on a piece of paper and chart Him out and go, well, this is God. This is what He does. He's like, boom. No. I'm much bigger. And that's a good thing. And for those of you who go, oh, I'm not into theology... I'm not an academic like that. I don't go deep like that. Let's remember this. The letter to the Ephesians, husbands and wives are addressed, and so are children. 
and slaves. Slaves barely, if most likely, didn't even have a primary education. This letter is written for us. It's written for common people, not academics, not theologians, not intellectuals. People like us struggling with life. This letter was written to uh, mainly a Gentile audience. You can read about how the church was planted in Acts chapter 19. And, and Ephesus was a, was a huge cosmopolitan city, had all kinds of diversity and, 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 and just crazy pagan worship and stuff going on. And a church gets planted in an amazing way. And now you have these Gentiles that are kind of struggling with what is their Christian identity. And part of the reason is that Christianity started as a Jewish sect, if you will. It kind of came out of Judaism. And so because of its strong roots in that history, it was natural for these guys to start to wonder if, like, well, maybe Christianity is just for Jews. And so they start to wonder, like, well, are we, are we good enough for this? Are we approved? Do we have the pedigree? And a lot of these Gentiles came out of very dark, dark stories and histories. Uh, if you read Ephesus, in particular Acts 19, as, as the church gets planted, um, there's basically, as people are getting saved, they start to make piles of their pagan idols and their books of witchcraft and like burning them in the streets. And it's like a full-on riot that just totally puts their economy of the city on its head, which leads to a riot in a huge theater with thousands and thousands of people. And so these people are coming out of like darkness, and they're coming out of, of, of pagan spiritualism and all these things, and that's why you hear at the end of Ephesians 6, he talks a lot about the, the spirits, the flesh and blood, and that our, that our battle's not against the flesh and blood, and put the armor of God and all those things, because they're not sure they're strong enough. They know that dark side, and like, okay, is Christ stronger than this? I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm strong enough. And then there's just the temptation of the lifestyle they came out of. Ephesus full of everything you might see in a, in a, you know, a cosmopolitan metropolis. All kinds of indulgence and drunkenness and sexual morality and, and, and all these things. And they're tempted. They're like, man, I don't know. I see all these things. A lot of pleasure and a lot of... I don't know if I'm satisfied enough in Christianity. So think about those three questions. Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Am I satisfied enough? This is the audience he's addressing. And then see where he starts. Paul starts in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He begins his letter by telling them about blessings. God has blessed us in Christ with every possible spiritual blessing. These are not earthly blessings. They're spiritual blessings. They're blessings that last into eternity. They're blessings that can never be taken away. Blessings like redemption. Blessings like justification. Blessings like adoption. Like sanctification. Glorification. Things that only God can give and can never be taken away because God has given them. See, when we don't feel good enough and we don't feel 
strong enough. We don't feel satisfied enough. Here's the problem. You ready? It's really simple. You have taken your eyes off the riches of God's grace and put them on the poverty of your disgrace. You have forgotten the blessings of God. You have ignored the blessings of God. Paul begins in a way we don't expect. Instead of admonishing them to think a certain way, instead of instructing them to feel a certain way, instead of telling them to do certain things, he shows them the riches of God's grace. He reveals a God bigger and more sovereign and more glorious and more gracious than they could ever imagine. Paul's plan for them to imitate God's glory is to just show them it. He actually believes that if God's glory is lifted up, if we just take God and go look at God, look at who He is, look at what He has done, we'll change. And I believe that's the case. Why? Whenever we look at a sunset, a glorious sunset, it's very rare for us to stop and go, that sunset is glorious for these reasons. Number one, the orange hue matches perfectly with the pink buffering it on the bottom. The temperature outside. I mean, you know, you start, that's not what happens. What happens is you go, oh, wow. And you feel something inside. You're emotionally changed. You don't have words to explain it. You just behold its beauty. And I believe that if we can just read through these texts and we just can behold who God is and the mystery that is Him, we will be changed. It will change us. And so, Paul begins by talking about God's blessing. And in verse 4, he gives us a pretty crazy statement. This is the first crazy statement of like a hundred we're going to hit. It's like, when did, when did God bless us? When did He plan to bless us? And what does it say? As He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll sit on choose for a second. I mean, in a second. But let's just sit on before. So before the foundation of the world, before anything existed, before there was light, before there was darkness, before there was water or land or creatures or humans or even time, God existed. God is self-existent. God was never created. God is the only true free being there is. God does nothing out of need. does nothing out of obligation. God needs nothing. He is perfect in every way. He is free in every way. Not dependent on anything or anyone. Completely independent. So, before anything, you've got God. And then before anything, there's a conversation that God has with Himself. 
What? Yeah. Strange, huh? <laughs> Scripture teaches that there's one God and He exists in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. They're all co-equal, co-eternal. But at some point, they have a conversation. Yes, I'm using some license here. But there was nothing external forcing this conversation, is my point. There was nothing they had to do, but they decided to do something. Our triune God decided to act. And we all have the question, which we'll try it today, like, why did God do this at all? Why did God create it all? And my point to begin with is, He didn't have to. Before anything was created, God made a decision. And when we ask the question, why did God create, we could have just easily responded as, why not? Why not create? When an artist paints a painting, we go, why did you paint that? I guess some might say, well, to make money, but others might say, I just wanted to paint. And what if God is just acting out of His character? Just creating out of who He is. But we see that before anything, God existed. Before anything, God had this conversation and that conversation came out where there was a perfect plan that was made before anything was created. Before there was anything to respond to or react to, God made a plan. And we need to understand that God making plans is very different than us making plans. Right? Vacation plans, if you've got kids, your vacation always turns into a trip. Right? Like, oh, this is going to be fun. This was H-E double hockey sticks. I wish I was home. Okay? That is the way our vacation plans go. Projects in the house, right? You're going to put a new floor down. You have a plan how it's going to go. And you've got extra parts and you spend extra money. It doesn't ever go the way you think. I always have great plans and I always don't follow them correctly. But you understand about God's plans. God's plans are not hopes. God's plans are not... He, this is what God hopes will happen. God's plans don't fail. God never calls an emergency meeting. God never readjusts, readjusts His plans. God is never surprised. This all before the foundation of the world, God makes a plan. And we know that our God is powerful enough to do what is most difficult. God is wise enough to do what is perfectly right and perfectly helpful. And God is loving enough to do or good enough to do what is most loving. I want to read a passage out of Isaiah. I don't think I gave the guys at the computer this verse. Isaiah 46 about God's plan says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, sinners. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning. Ooh. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will 
accomplish all of my purpose. God's plans don't fail. So God made a plan before the world was founded. And the question is, what, what's the nature of that plan? What did He plan to do? Verse 4 says this. Put that next slide up. Even as He chose us in Him, we know it's before the foundation of the world. We'll cross that off. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. So even as He chose us in Him, we'll get to choose. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. So, clearly God plans to create a people for Himself. That's His plan. doesn't have to. He does it in love. He does it in grace. He's not obligated. He is not in need. We know He's personal because He's triune, so He's not like, oh, I need some people to worship me because I just feel a lack of worship. No. He creates. He decides to create. He decides to love. But then... Prepare yourself. God planned to create a people for Himself to love. He also planned for that people to fall. Why did He stick that tree in the garden? Didn't He know? Yes! He knew. Uncomfortable yet? But if you are going to plan to make a people holy and blameless... You are going to plan for them to become unholy and guilty. Unholy men need to be made holy. And so he plans for their fall. He expects their fall. Does he directly cause their fall? Whatever makes you most comfortable or uncomfortable. Ordain, allow, cause, whatever. Right? We get to the semantic yoga, right? Like, well, this makes me feel good, so I'll use this word. If he's planning to make them holy, he's planning to make them blameless, he's not surprised when they become unholy. But it gets better. Plans to create a people for himself, plans that people of all, plans for the redemption of those people, right? He does plan before the foundation of the world for grace. And if you're planning for grace before the foundation of the world, you are planning for sin. We see that worked out in Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning, where it comes to Adam and Eve who have chosen to rebel against God's Word. They have chosen to say, I'm going to be happier apart from God. They have chosen to believe the lies that the enemy taught. Namely, that God was a liar. That God's Word wasn't trustworthy. That God was actually holding out of them. And they rebelled. And then God came to them. These men that, man and woman that He planted a garden for, to care, they rebelled. But immediately He says, a seed will come. You're going to suffer the consequences of your decisions, but a seed will come and He will crush the head of Satan. Salvation will come. Redemption will come. And then the most amazing thing happens that we totally ignore. 
And I think it's the most gracious part of that story. I got to read it. Genesis chapter 3. Let me just listen to this because I don't think we talk about this enough. After they're found out, after God says these are the things because of the consequences of your sin. In verse 22 of chapter 3, the very end of chapter 3, what does it say? And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What the snarf is God doing there? That just seems mean. No, think about this. They're broken. They're full of shame. They're full of guilt. And God says, Oh, whoa, whoa. I don't want them to eat the tree of life and live forever in that state. And so he pushes them out into the darkness, which is actually what? The path to redemption. They have to go into the darkness out of the garden so that God in His redemptive plan can bring them back in again. Holy and blameless. Dare not leave them to live forever in their state of brokenness because God has a plan and it's to make them holy and blameless. Makes us view maybe some of the darkness that we've experienced differently. We start to believe that, okay, is God really in control of this? And how could God actually allow me to go in this, dare I say, push me into this because oftentimes that is the path of redemption. So God plans that. Plans for grace. Plans to save. And that's His plan. The nature of His plan. We go, what's, what's the instrument of His plan? Like, what's the, What is He going to use to do this? And He has this word that's difficult. And throughout this series, know that we're going to talk about some hard words. We're going to talk about the P word. Predestination. We're going to talk about the E word, election. We're going to talk about the F word, free will. All right. We're going to talk about these words. And this first one is election. And let's just take scripture what he says, right? Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in Christ, in him, God chooses. What does that mean? believe God chooses a people to be the object of His grace. He chooses a people to be the object of His grace. He chooses to show undeserved favor before the foundation of the world to a people He knows are going to reject, rebel in that moment. He plans to transform a sinful people into the image of His Son whom He loves perfectly. They will be rescued. They will be made holy. They will be made blameless. They will be changed. They will be perfected. And they will enjoy eternity with Him. That's His plan. Romans 8, which is a verse we'll, we'll, 28-30, through 30, which is a section of Scripture we'll hit several times through this series, says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknow, sorry, foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. There's an order to things, and that's really what the series is about. The order of how things unfold in God's plan. What we see is that God chooses a people to be the object of His grace. He chooses these people before the foundation of the world. Now, here's the implication that makes us uncomfortable. If He chooses some, He doesn't choose others. I'm not saying I like it. But we can't just define who God is and what He does based off of our gut. Let me read you another disturbing scripture. John chapter 6. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to basically just like throw scriptures out there and go, yeah, there you go, and then walk away. Because who am I really to explain things that I actually think are really pretty simply stated and they're just difficult to believe? They're not difficult to understand. But we want to say like, God can't be like that. There's no way God did that. And what whole purpose of this series is to show that it's actually gracious for God to be like that. It's a picture of His grace, of His favor, and we always want to look at it on the opposite way. How cruel. How insensitive. Not realizing that grace is totally unfair. You realize that, we'll talk about this next week a ton, we deserve death. Every single one of us. We rebelled against God, or rejected His Word, we all deserve to die. So any favor is unfair because we're not getting what we fairly deserve. John 6, verse 60 said this. This is right after Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And people are like, ooh. So here's what happens after He says what is a deeply theological thing. It says, when many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Does this make you uncomfortable? He said, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Here we go. You're ready to squirm. But there are some of you who do not believe. And here's John's little parenthetical. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted to Him by the Father. Jesus chooses to save. And what happens oftentimes with that discomfort is that people say, well, that's just cruel. How can God create a people and then choose some and not others? And so in order to, to kind of combat that discomfort, they'll create a, a, man, a more man-centered theology that says, well, God must have looked 
on to the eons of time, right? Romans 8, he foreknew, those he foreknew would make a choice, and they're the ones who are the elect. But here's the problem with that. Even if God is looking down the eons of time and sees who will choose and who will not, he is still deciding to create people who he knows are not going to choose him. So the discomfort is still there. You still have to deal with it. It doesn't fix it. And God chooses, he says, to make people the object of his grace in order to accomplish his purposes. This is where we're getting into it deeply. God's choice is gracious in that it's never earned and it's no more evident than the entire story of the Old Testament and the people of Israel. They were a rebellious little bunch. Right? And when God saved them out of the Exodus, right? Saved in Exodus, saved them out of Egypt and saved them from slavery, they thought they were pretty hot stuff. And almost began to feel entitled. Yeah, we rock. Like, look what we did to Egypt. And in Deuteronomy, God comes to them and reminds them of something. He says this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and 8. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. He says, you guys are special to me. You guys are special to me. They're like, yeah, we are. Keep going, Lord. He says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasure possession out of all peoples who are on the face of the earth. Okay? So lots more people than just Israel. He says, I chose you out of all the peoples to be at no one else as a treasure possession but you. And he continues. He's like, yeah, keep going. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on, on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You know what he tells him right there? I didn't pick you because you're actually special. You weren't big. You weren't great. You weren't powerful. In fact, you were like dinky, enslaved, puny people. I didn't pick you because of you. What does he continue to say? But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what am I saying? If you look at the Old Testament, God graciously chooses people after people after people. Start with someone like Noah. God chooses Noah. God chooses Abraham. God chooses Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. God chooses Moses, right? An 80-year-old fugitive? God chooses David. God chooses Peter and Paul and Mary, this teenage mom. God is the one choosing for His purposes to complete His plan. That is what His choice is predicated on. It is never predicated on us. There is absolutely zero pride in this theology. This should lead us to complete humility saying, I have absolutely nothing to offer and yet God has shown me grace. In fact, I have the very opposite. I am undeserving. I am broken. I am rebellious. I am evil in and out. And yet, God has shown me grace. 
And the problem with this theology and the reason it brings so much division is people start thinking they're pretty darn special. Forgetting the grace that has made them who they are. Which brings us, I think, to our final and most important question. All we're doing is looking up and saying, okay, He chose before the faintest world to be holy and blameless. Whoa. The question remains, though, why does God do it at all? What's the point? And I'll tell you this, the point isn't your salvation. You know when we evangelize and we proclaim the Gospel to people? You know that's the primary reason to proclaim the Gospel is not to save people? That's just a nice Benny. The primary reason to proclaim the Gospel, to preach a sermon, to declare faith in Jesus Christ is to give Him glory. And in doing that, people are saved. Why does God create all? He says, and if you can, if you can grasp this, you'll grasp, I believe, where meaning in life truly comes from. Verse 5, he says, He predestined us. We will deal with that other stuff in another week. But I'm an English teacher, right? Taking out the chunks that aren't necessary, but help bring meaning. You take them out, it still makes meaning. He predestined us with the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, right? Comma. He predestined us to the praise of His glorious grace. He predestined us to the praise of His glorious grace. God does everything for His glory. All creation, all redemption, everything that happens in this world is designed to the praise of His glorious grace. And to glorify God means to magnify His greatness, to praise His name, to make manifest and public His character to display His perfect love, display His perfect justice, to display His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy and His power, His wisdom. That is the point of everything. And I know we sit there and we go, man, really? That sounds like God's just about Himself? Yes, from Genesis to Revelation, God's about Himself. And just as we sit and, and praise a, a, a sunset or praise an awesome football thing, we don't have to think about it. We just go, yeah! That was awesome! That's beautiful! And when you see perfect justice, and when you see perfect love, and when you see perfect grace, you guess what you do? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the response. You don't have to think about it because it's perfect and beautiful. From Genesis to Revelation, God is about His own glory. Very quickly. There's a list in my notes. You can get them online. In Exodus it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened for the glory of God. In 1 Samuel it says, the beginning of the monarchy of Israel was about the glory of God. Solomon dedicated the temple, of the glory, uh, temple for the glory of God. Israel in 2 Samuel became a great and powerful among the nations because God was making Himself a name. In Habakkuk chapter 2, which there's plenty of Isaiah, but we'll talk Habakkuk, God's vision for the earth was to be filled with the knowledge of His glory. God in Malachi decided to destroy the Israelites because they would not lay in their hearts to give glory to His name. 
The second coming about the cons- is about the consummation of the glory of God. I read that in 2 Thessalonians. And in 1 Corinthians, we are commanded to do all things, whether we eat or drink, to the glory of God. Everything is about God. I love how Matt Chandler said it, so I'll just quote him. He says, God, He is the story of the Bible, not you or me. It is God and God alone. God's name and namesake alone. The point of everything is God's glory alone so that God alone will be the glory. It is God who is deep in riches. It is God who is deep in wisdom. It is God who is deep in loving kindness. It is God who is deep in glory. Not us. This is the message of the Bible. And this is the point of the series. And I know it's tempting for us because we're trying to be man-centered and are thinking of God like if a man said I'm all about myself, we think that would be selfish, but not God. And what did God choose as His means to maximize His glory? The death of His Son. Do we see the kind of God that we serve? He said, I'm going to do all things for my glory. This plan is for my glory, and it's going to include my death for my people to save them from their sin. Acts 2.22, in Peter's first glorious sermon, says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Wait a second. God's definite plan for Jesus' death included His death by lawless men. Yes, and His betrayal by friends, and His rejection by leaders. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us that suffering is never meaningless. And evil is always in the control of God. That's no more evident than the story of Joseph. Whom if you don't know the story of Joseph, you should read the back half of the book of Genesis. His brothers fake his death, sell him into slavery, and he has a horrible life up until the point where God seems to intervene more actively, but he's intervening the entire time. Through a series of events, he basically finds himself wrongfully accused, well, in slavery, wrongfully accused, in prison, and then comes out of prison to be basically the second in command of Egypt. And then his brothers who experience a famine, brothers who have killed him, killed him, told his dad that he's dead, come to get food because of the famine, and he meets his brothers. And they're actually fearful of him. Because when he reveals himself, they're afraid of what he's going to do. And when his dad dies, they're really afraid of what he's going to do because they feel like he's just being nice to him until dad's gone and then he's going to smoke him. And here's what he tells them. 
Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them in their fear, Do not fear, for I, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. What you meant for evil, God means for good. God decided to glorify Himself through the crucifixion of His Son for us. That we might enjoy His salvation and relationship with Him. So as we back up and we summarize, what do we know? We know this. And my intent again is to show, not explain every nuance, not explain every detail, but to show what, what seems to be the case in the first couple of verses of Ephesians. That before the foundation of the world, God planned for you. God knew you. Exactly who you were. You were an idea in His mind. He knew you intimately. And He wanted to love you. And decided to love you. You're not an accident. You are exactly as God planned you to be. If sin did not surprise Him, you are exactly who God planned you to be. And before the foundation of the world, God planned to redeem you. God knew the darkness you were going to go into. God knew the darkness that was going to be poured onto you by others. And He planned to redeem you. Your sin and the sin of others in your life is not a surprise to God. That should bring you comfort because it's not chaotic. And the cross of Jesus Christ shows us that there's meaning in suffering. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to adopt you. To give you a new identity, a new life, a new hope, a new protection. That of a true loving Father. And as He adopted you, guess what? He planned to change you. To make you holy and blameless. And I wish when I became a Christian, I was automatically perfectly holy and blameless. And I am spiritually, but in the flesh? No way. That's a long process. And God says, I am committed to changing you. Every part of your story, every part of your story is to glorify God. What does that mean? The most glorifying thing He could do in your life is to make you look like Jesus. And so He will bring whatever is necessary into your life if that will make you look more like His Son. More than that, every part of your life, God has not just planned to change you, God has planned for the purpose of helping you look more like Jesus, but so that you can also help others praise His grace. He's using you to tell His story. He wants to use the darkness that you've experienced to reveal the glories of His grace. And ultimately, His plan is for the foundation of the world to restore you to perfection and to live with you forever. God's plan is perfect and can be trusted. Jeremiah 29.11 maybe gives a little more meaning now where he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, 
not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. As we go through this series, you're going to be made uncomfortable. I realize that. You're going to be faced with things that are difficult to comprehend. But I will say this. Our intent is to blow up and just see how big God is and the grace He's shown us to save us, committed to change us, and ultimately restore us for His glory and for our joy. And I pray that as we behold His glory, as you just look at it, not for a second believing you're going to understand there's a mystery to it, but as you behold it, you begin to be changed from the inside out to rest in the glories of His grace. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before You humbly recognizing that we are unworthy. Lord, we have done absolutely nothing but contribute sin and rebellion to our salvation. But You had a plan before the world began. And our sin did not surprise You. And our decisions, though they grieved You, were not a surprise to You. And the sin that was poured into our life by others, though it grieved You, was not a surprise to You. And You planned, Father, to use what the enemy and what men meant for evil for good. You meant it, Father, to bring us to a place of looking more like Jesus. You meant it to glorify Yourself to the praise of Your glorious grace. You meant it for our joy. And so I thank You that we can rest, that this world is not simply chaotic and in a mess and out of control, but it is firmly in Your hands. And it has been in Your hands since before it was ever created, and it will be in hands after it is gone. We are in Your hands. So let us trust, Lord, in Your grace. Trust in Your power to save. Trust in Your power to change. And trust in Your power to redeem and to restore us to perfection. I pray that our theology will be centered on You, Lord. And that we will look upon the world and be shaped by who You are and not be shaped by our intellect, our emotions, our experience. Father, would You rule our intellect? Would You rule our emotions? And would You rule our experience so that we can enjoy and remember the riches of grace in Christ? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now is the time uh, after hearing uh, the Word of God and